this is just for future evidence. <laughs> so, just for my knowledge, is this going to be on the internet? Sorry? Will it be on the internet? Uh, it's okay if it no, is, no, I just no, need to know so I don't mention names and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's no problem, I just, so I know. I don't get somebody in trouble. Um, before I start, along the lines of risk, we uh, I actually have that game in Bosnia. We love to play that game with some of the young guys there. And I have taped on the bottom of the box, there's a proverb that says, man may cast the dice, but God determines how they fall. So just along those lines, whoever won and whoever lost, it was out of your control, just so you know. Um, but first of all, and, and uh, my wife and I want to say thank you for the opportunity to come and to speak um, and to share with you what God has been doing in our lives and what he's doing in Bosnia. Um, and I hope as, as I go away from here this morning that that will actually be what rings in your heart and your mind is um, that God is at work in places that you may never have imagined. Um, as Frank said this morning, I'm going to share about 15 minutes on um, what, what's going on in Bosnia and then for about half an hour I'll share with you from God's word. Um, so I'll try to be faithful to that time and, and advance, ask for your forgiveness because I'm sure I won't be. Um, so to begin with, this is a picture of our family and... Please do not feel uncomfortable. If you can't see the city bitty screen, there are free seats up here if you want to scoot forward. If you can't see, sit in the aisle, my wife said. Yeah, can, can you put the thing in the center? More towards the middle? Yeah. Would that help? Yeah. I'm just watching for a while. Oh, oh, oh what have we done? Lift. That's good. Is that better? Is that better? Yeah. Terry, can you just move to the left? <laughs> I'm actually going to set this up here with me so I can see it. So this, this first page that you see up here is a picture of the country of Bosnia. Um, and because I only have 15 minutes this morning, I don't have time to go into the amazing depths and riches of the history and culture of Bosnia um, because it is inc incredibly intricate. Um, just between the Serbs and the Bosnians and the, and the Croats, the Catholicism, the Orthodoxy and the Islam, um, the history of the Ottomans and the Austro Austrian Empire, the beginning of the First World War, so forth and so on, in this little tiny country. Bosnia used to be one of the republics of former Yugoslavia, um, and in the war in the 90s, once Tito passed away in the communist times of that part of the world, he left a massive power vacuum, and the amazing greed and corruption of man just tore that country apart. And Bosnia was the heart of it and one of the most mixed republics, and therefore it saw some of the most gruesome acts of genocide and warfare during the 90s. And most of them were committed against, in this war, against the Muslim peoples of, um, of Bosnia. They actually make up about 50% of the population. And if you can see it, don't know if you can, so I'm going to walk over here. This red dot is Sarajevo. But this little green peninsula that comes out is, this, is a small town of Gorazde. Gorazde was a refugee city during the war, um, and all of the Muslims along the eastern side of Bosnia were crushed into a couple of cities there. Two of them were where there were massive genocide committed, and they were completely eradicated. And Gorazde was one of the surviving cities at the end of the war. And so a small city of fifteen to 20,000 grew to over 80,000 and was under siege for years um, by Orthodox Christians is how they saw it. Um, so that is the first challenge we had in joining a team of, of missionaries in that small town. The first thing you do as you come is they ask you if you're a Christian, and in their mindset, Christian are the people who just had them under siege and, and slaughtered their families in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God is bigger than that, and God has been doing some amazing things in Bosnia. Um, I've tried to condense it down to just sharing three major areas that God has been blessing us personally as we work with a big team in, in Garage Day. First of all is our personal family, and I'm going to work out from there. Um, Emily and I have been married for 14 years now, um, and we were not able, by God's ordaining, we were unable to have children from the, beginning, from the time we were married, and we worked and worked and tried all kinds of things, adoption processes, all kinds of things, until finally I let go of control. God took us to Bosnia, and while we were there on the, I don't know, skin of my teeth kind of thing, we were constantly trying to adopt and right to the point where we said, okay, this is enough. It's too much money. It's too much time. It's too much effort. All of a sudden, we got the, the email, you have a little girl waiting for you in Bulgaria. Don't, don't even, I'm, I'm at the beginning of this thing. Don't get emotional now. Um, 
So God completely not only transformed our lives personally, because as much as you read and you think you know about parenting, you never know anything until you actually have a little one in your home. Um, He completely transformed our lives personally, but also our ministry. Emily's position as a woman completely changed because she's been married for so long without children. That was almost like a stigma that she had to bear with all of her friends and those kinds of things. Um, But I just put a couple of pictures up here of exactly what this little girl does in our ministry. Um, and the guy with the bald head right there, he's actually the, the Muslim husband of one of the believers in our, in our fellowship. And he's not a practicing Muslim, he's just born into that family and therefore he's Muslim. Um, and, uh, and he's always very distant, I, I guess is the best word for it. And, uh, and, and I've never been able to communicate with him and it's always awkward to talk because it's always like, hey, the weather's been good this week, that's pretty much it. Um, well, as soon as she came on the scene, he has a beautiful young daughter who's 20-something years old now, and he, and he loves children. And Eliana just went straight up to him and crawled up in his lap. And that was just like immediately the wall came down and we had things to talk about. And, and the, so it's, that's just one little example of how Eliana um, actually is, is opening doors that we have no control over and we're, we're very grateful for. Um, her name actually means, um, in, in Hebrew, El-Ana, which means the God who answers. Um, and her whole life is a demonstration of prayer after prayer and provision after provision from Yahweh, um, the God who answers. Um, and I would love to share more about that, but I have to keep going. Um, so the next one is God's amazing ability to bless us in our fellowship of believers. Um, when you think of a, a fellowship of believers, this is a massive church in Bosnian terms. Um, we actually have four, maybe five, uh, professing Bosnian believers in our fellowship, and that's expanded by the 14 to 15 team members that we have. So we have about 20 people when everybody's there. Um, and God has just been doing amazing things in each of the lives of these people because each of them is a very unique and very big story of how God is working Amazingly, let me see which pictures I have in the next one. Okay. Um, I'll just share with you a little bit about the woman down there with a gigantic head. Not the woman, the, 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 the doll standing next to her. That's Masha and the Bear. I don't know if you've heard of Masha and the Bear. That's one of Eliana's favorite little cartoons. Masha's the one with the gigantic head. Um, the woman standing next to her, I'll just call her M. She's, she's in our fellowship, and she came from a background of witchcraft um, where her mother and her teachers in school did all kinds of occultic practices in order to get her to advance and to be able to fit in school. Um, and then they also taught her how to do these things, and they use that when women are pregnant to determine the sex of the baby and, and so forth and so on. And so by God's grace, her dad was in some other country, and somebody came up to him and handed him a tract about John 3.16. He had no interest in it whatsoever, but he just put it in his pocket not to be rude. And as soon as he got home, he went to throw it in the trash, and his daughter's like, can I have it, can I have it, M, when she was a little girl? Um, and he's like, sure, you can have it, it's just a piece of trash. So she read it, John 3.16, and she put her trust in the Jesus of John 3.16. She had no input whatsoever from a church or from anybody to disciple her. So her faith in Christ for, for over a decade, um, before there was any voice in that town, Bible voice, was just really torn apart by all the, the witchcraft and the things that were mixed in. So she really struggles with um, the spiritual world, talking to angels and, and having these experiences that are not of God and those kinds of things. And we have seen time and time again, because she also doesn't have a filter, so coming to our church services sometimes is kind of like going to a bad-rated movie with regards to language and those kinds of things. So it's just amazing the way that God has been working in her life to slowly transform her in ways that we didn't control or dictate or try to teach her, but somehow the Holy Spirit taught her from from the lessons and those kinds of things. But at the same way, the way that he's working in her life is having a drastic effect on those who have considered themselves mature and stable walking and honest and sincere. She really challenges those people in our fellowship. Um, and it's an amazing way that God uses that dynamic. And that's just one of the people in our tiny fellowship. So he's blessing us with the fellowship of believers. We're growing together. We're becoming more of a family. I wish I could describe each person, but it's, it's, it's not. Unless Christ was in it, it would not be possible. Um, but I just wanted to share this with you as well. 
Um, we that that room you see on the top, if you can see it, that's actually a room. <laughs> uh, that's actually our team leader sharing his testimony. We were recently attacked in the media by an extreme group of uh, Muslims who are actually the founding sect of ISIS in the Middle East, um, Wahhabism it's called. Um, and in response to that, many of our friends in Garage, they were really shaken up. Are you really here to deceive us? Are you really here to trick our children into believing your, your religion? And those kinds of things, their idea of what missionary is. And Steve never actually reacted in the media the people of Garage Day reacted in saying, we don't understand how you can say bad things against these people who all they have done is serve our children and serve our community and do all these things. Everybody knows Steve personally. And so when this attack was done, it actually it backfired. And then on top of that, all the personal relationships with people on the team, we suddenly had this opportunity to explain why we are really here, what, what, what we understand missionary to mean, and those kinds of things. And that's Steve. We, we now have an evangelistic service every Easter and every Christmas. <coughs> they, just, they just finished it. I can't see the dates on that to make sure. But, um, and in that, we do testimonies from believers, and then we do a, a short explanation of the gospel. And that's Steve sharing from his perspective, why God brought him to, to Garage Day and why, um, why they are doing what they're doing. I'm sorry, I have tons of stories just coming into my head that I could share, but I'm limited on time. I would love to, but we'll keep rocking. Um, so the, the picture down in the bottom right, I'm guessing, is on your screen with the guy coming up with the wet T-shirt. He is actually an imam from a village way out in the middle of nowhere of Bosnia. And I'm sharing this story to show you how God is at work um, outside of the specific uh, ministries of people. This was a village that is actually run by Sharia law illegally in Bosnia, and it's, it's full of people that practice Wahhabi, and it's actually one of the recruiting grounds to send to, to the Middle East. Um, and this guy, from the time he was a teenager, had a desire to truly know Allah, to truly seek and to understand who he is, and so he became an imam, which is like a, a pastor in a church. He leads a mosque. Um, and he, and he, he labored for that for eight years, before he finally got the opportunity to go to, um, to the U.S., to Florida. And the interesting thing about those kinds of cultures, one of the biggest things that keeps them from being able to reach out and to ex experiment is an interesting word, but to look into other religions and stuff is just the cultural pressure. They're in a bubble that does not allow them to even interact or to play with those kinds of ideas. So once they go outside of that bubble, either they go way off the rails into sin and things that they shouldn't be doing, or they actually get to begin to question all the things that, they've been, that have been poured into their life all along. And so he had that experience, but unfortunately he didn't go to the fullest length of actually going to a Bible teaching church. But he became very convinced that something was wrong with the Quran and with, with the prophet Muhammad. All of the things that he had believed his whole life were shaken. Um, and so when he got back to Sarajevo, the first thing he did is he googled evangelical church in um, Sarajevo. And there's a small Bible school there. He went, he heard the gospel, and immediately trusted in Jesus Christ. He didn't care about the price. He didn't care about how much he would lose. He saw the truth, and he believed. This is a Wahhabi imam from a village in the middle of nowhere, going back and forth across the world. Who, who, who orchestrated that? And we actually were at a Bible conference where we, went, where we met this young man, and this is him publicly declaring his faith with baptism. And it's just, it's just an amazing story. God always seems to do this for us because it is a long, slow, hard work in Bosnia with regards to seeing change, with regards to seeing people even interested in the gospel. And when we hear stories like this, it's like God saying, don't quit, don't stop. I am still at work and sometimes in ways that you have no finger of control over. Um, so please be in prayer for our fellowship. That is how God works in communities like this, is through the body of believers. He uses missionaries, he uses individuals, but the greatest testimony is the light of the community of Jesus Christ. The love that they have for one another is what speaks of their discipleship to Jesus Christ. Blessings on our team. Now this is the one that's really huge, and I don't have a lot of time to explain it. But that building in the middle of the buildings in that picture is, is one that our team leader built to serve the community there. They originally came 13 or 14 years ago after the war and foreigners were allowed in for humanitarian purposes. And he came on a team just to rebuild roofs. He had no interest whatsoever in missions. 
But while he was there, God helped him to see the long-term needs of people. They would have these physical needs, but the scars and the wounds of war, especially because they were done in the name of Christianity, would go on for generations. And God wanted men and women to come to give their lives because that's how long it would take to actually implement changes, long-lasting changes. And so he came with that desire to start from scratch, from the simple thing of food and clothing to homes to education, to infrastructure, to so on and so forth. Because humanitarian aid needs to shift from where people are dependent on you to back where they're dependent on themselves. And that's always been his desire. Um, and that's what our team is in the business of doing. We believe in bringing shalom to the people, to bringing peace. Um, and that comes in rebuilding and helping them with their, tr their physical needs. So I wish I could go through each person on that team. Um, but... I don't have time. <laughs> I, I keep saying that. If you want me to speak, I'm, I'm, we're here for three more weeks, so um, I'm, I'd be more than happy to talk more about that. But let me just briefly talk about the future for us. Um, if, you, if you were interested in the organization we're with, it's called Crossworld. Um, you can go online, crossworld.org, and look at some of the ministries that they have all over the world. They're very diverse in what they do. Um, but you can also look a little bit into what Bosnia does if you go on that, that website. Um, so our team is now exploded. As you can see in that picture, those were all full-time members of our team, and we had two long-term interns on the top. Um, and we're looking to the future of what God would have us do because we have so many people that we feel like God actually wants us to split, in a good sense, and go to another city to, to spread the influence. And the reason I say that is that black line of demarcation in, in, along the um, Republic and the Federation's uh, borders actually is the delineation between where there is any Bible influence and none at all. Grajde is the only town in eastern Bosnia that has any voice, um, physical presence, so to speak, of, of where people can come to find out about Jesus Christ. Um, most of that area is actually Orthodox Christian, but I have a lot of stories about how much Orthodox Christianity actually has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a whole other bowl of wax. Um, but they desperately need people to go and be available and to work so that people would have the opportunity to hear the truth of Jesus. That's our team. And just a little bit with regards to me and Emily, God has been doing a lot of work in our lives personally over the last year. Um, I had, I've always had a lot of sin issues, um, but I like to call it baggage. That kind of dumbs it down. It's really not that dumb. It's, yeah, it's bad. So, uh, just as I went to Bosnia, I had this ideal image of what missions was and what missionary was. And I didn't realize that I was going around with this baggage on my shoulders. But as I went through it, I really hurt a lot of people um, by putting expectations on them that they could not meet and really expectations that I was not meeting myself. Um, and God did some things in my life to help me really see the ugliness of that pride, of what I like to call vain glory, um, a glory that was not my own. Um, and in that, he also helped me to see what he had actually gifted me for and what I love to do. And that's actually one-on-one -on -one working with people. I might be standing here speaking, but I don't think that God has actually called me to be a preacher per se. Um, I love to sit and to work with people to understand their lives and to see how God's been at work and how they can go on with that um, so that they can actually grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and to do that, um, I've had Bible training in the sense of teaching and understanding the Word. I need further training, so to speak, in, in helping people with, with life. Um, and that's what we're going to be going into in the next couple of years as I continue to serve in the church there, preaching on a regular basis. I'll also be doing this further education so that as our team splits, um, that would actually be one of my roles as we go to this new place, is figuring out how I can serve people in that way. So we desperately need prayer. Um, our team needs prayer and our fellowship needs prayer there. And I, I thank you for the opportunity to share that with you this morning. I'd say if you have any questions, save them for later. Hello. If there's anything wrong with what I say this morning, it's because of the Sunday school teachers I had when I was a kid. <laughs> Frank went red for a reason. <laughs> so if you would now, please take your Bibles. And even though God 
I don't believe it's called me to, a, to be a preacher. This is one of my greatest joys, is to open the Word and to try to explore the riches that are in there um, with the people that are listening. It's truly a great privilege and a pleasure to, to study God's Word. Um, I have prayer on my notes later down, but I, I'd really like to pray before we get into it. So, Father, thank you this morning for just the cool relief that we have um, after several days of heat. Thank you for the, the big reminder we had of, of your coming and your rescuing us, um, the purpose that drives you, the passion that you have to save sinners like we read this morning in the scriptures. Um, you desperately want to save broken people. Um, and that's hard for us to see because we naturally want to lift ourselves up. And so we pray, God, that this morning that you would humble us, um, that you would give us good vision to see Jesus as he truly is today in our lives and in this community and especially in this body, God. I pray that as we walk away from here that they wouldn't so much remember Paul and Emily, but they would be really impressed by the greatness of who you are, God, and the passion that you are still fulfilling here and all the way across the world um, to draw people regardless of the impossibility to yourself. So help us this morning to long for you, Jesus, to be desperate, to be bold um, in coming to you, um, to believe um, as, as is the intention of the writer of this gospel. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. I brought this just in case I needed it. Oh, my scriptures are actually in my notes. Yeah. I stole my wife's Bible. Can you say that? I stole my wife's Bible? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever had... Does anybody in here work with medical stuff? Anybody? Nobody? No nurses? Nothing? Oh, wow. My wife. Oh, they didn't want to raise their hand? <laughs> Um, I remember one time I worked for 10 years as a paramedic firefighter in the U.S., um, and I loved that job. That was an incredibly fun job, if you're allowed to say that about a job. Um, but I remember there were times when I came, up across, came across people that were just really, what's the word I'm allowed to use in the, at the pulpit? They, they, you didn't want to be around them. They were disgusting. They were vile. They were you just you just didn't want to be around them, and they had no right to use the system. That they, <laughs> I see some shaking your heads, so you understand what I'm talking about. I remember one time when I was on clinicals in Detroit, and uh, they in the ER learning to do IVs and those kinds of things. That was my main job. This guy came in who was handcuffed to the bed, and he was cut. His skin was yellow, his eyes were bloodshot, and and they had a mask on his face. And he was just screaming and cussing and fighting and doing everything that he could to cause problems for the people that were there. And the reason they put the mask on his face is he kept trying to spit on people as, as, um, as they brought him in. Well, my job was to get IVs. So they told, and I'd already had a little bit of, let's stay away from this guy. Well, before I went in the room, they told me, you need to be very careful because he has the intention to hurt you. And he has HIV and some kind of hepatitis that we don't know which yet. And both of them are highly communicable, so you need to be careful. So you can imagine the chills that came over me as I had to go in and get this guy's blood. That fear, that guardedness that you feel towards someone who is so dirty. Um, do you remember the Ebola virus and the scare that that gave? I, we were actually in the U.S. when it really was, was booming. And there were so many people that were so scared that it was going to be a massive Ebola outbreak in the U.S. where we have amazing medical care and things like that. It was the fear that disease causes in people. It just it, it, Not in a good way, but it fascinates me. In the, it, how much people will actually flee and do whatever they can, nonsense stuff, to, in order to avoid disease. That has to do with the story that I want to look at today. It's only a couple of verses, but it is an incredible little story. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. You said this is clean, right, Frank? Don guarantees it. Don guarantees it, okay. Luke chapter 5, and please stand with me as we read God's Word. And it came to pass, 
When he was in a certain city, Jesus this is talking about, behold a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately, immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. You may be seated. I chose um, this passage this morning, to be honest, because uh, as our fellowship in Garage, they were working through the Gospel of, of Luke. And I have been astounded by the stories that Luke records with the intention of strengthening the reader's faith so that you can understand better the person in whom you have believed. Not just the facts, not just the doctrines, but the actual personality and the power of the one who is your Savior. So before we look at this small story, which is actually in a bigger context, I, I, I'm going to focus on it though. Um, hold back. Uh, I need to touch on two things of context so that we can see the depths that are here. And the first of those is the concept of leprosy. I've already mentioned some contagious diseases. But in the scriptures, if you've done your Old Testament reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, leprosy is a big issue among the Israelites. But leprosy itself actually addresses skin, all skin diseases of that time. It wasn't just what we know as leprosy today. And they were generally separated into two categories, those which you could overcome and would go away over time, and those which were permanent, and some of them who, which would actually slowly and horribly kill you. Um, two whole chapters in the book of Leviticus are dedicated to this disease and how to recognize it and how to deal with it or quarantine it from the community. The worst form of this disease today is known as Hansen's disease, and it's commonly known as leprosy. And I think it's actually what this man had in this story. In the past, most people thought that this was a disease that was actually rotting tissue. It's, it's tissue that was rotting away. But scientists in time figured out that it was actually a bacteria that attacked the peripheral nerves of the body. People affected by this disease actually have more problems and more injury from the lack of sensation than they actually do from the disease. More damage is done because they can't feel what they're doing, sense anything. Normally it affects the face and the hands first, causing spots that are like reddish white and they have no sensation whatsoever. And those spots spread to the point where they'll have whole sections of skin where they can't feel anything at all. It then spreads to the nose, the nerves of the eyes, the ears, and they slowly lose circulation to the point where they will actually fall off the nose and the ears and those kinds of things, and they lose their vision. And that's one of the reasons when you see lepers, they're so tightly bound is because they're actually trying to keep parts of their body tied on. Um, it sounds humorous, but it's really not. Um, and then it actually can affect the vocal cords. So there's an obsession today with zombies. And this is the realistic look of a zombie. They sounded like the walking dead. Remember, however, that more damage is actually done to the body from the lack of sensation. So they would touch something rough or hot and have no idea, and because of that, they could lose a whole limb or something like that because it burned and, and those kinds of things. And that's just the beginning of this horrific disease. It that goes, then goes on to directly affect the fingers and the toes and the skin all over the body, and slowly but surely it works its way inward to attack the very organs of the body and kill the person. And I say slowly because it is a very long process. That's the disease of leprosy. The other concept or context that we have to have in mind for, for this little story is that of clean and unclean in the Old Testament. And this is a huge subject, but I'm going to try and touch on it briefly. First of all, it is not a twisted concept that so many traditions and things that were come up in that time in Judaism, this was actually ordained by God in his law, this concept of clean and unclean. It's not synonymous with good and evil. Clean and unclean is not good and evil. 
I, I used to think as a kid that that's what that meant every time you read it, that unclean people were evil and clean people were good. Excuse me. Did I say that right? Unclean or evil? Clean or good? Okay. Um, so God had established rules for his people so that they would know what would actually make them unclean. And the unclean person was very simply ceremonially unfit to participate in the public um, religious worship of the nation. Um, they were also, in certain circumstances, told to be withdrawn from the, from the community, quarantined. This is hard to grasp, but it was actually a huge concept in the Jewish life. It wasn't just the religious things that could make you clean and unclean. It was everyday um, circumstances of your life. Um, and I'll just give you a couple of examples to show that this is not something right and wrong that you do. It's, it's just life. It, it's how it goes on. Anytime you would touch a dead body, and that includes any form of cooking, um, childbirth and the monthly cycle of a woman, any natural discharge from the body, any sickness, touching the furniture or bedding of those already listed, eating any kind of unclean meat, which eliminates me because I love bacon. Um, every morning I love unclean meat. Um, so those are just everyday circumstances that would make someone unfit to participate in religious worship. And there are many reasons why God established this principle of life for the Jewish nation, for Israel. However, the main one, like so many of the other laws with regards to God's law, is it had one purpose above all others. It was a sign to teach them about who they are and who God is. Specifically, God is absolutely holy and pure. And man is in a constant state of filth, of impurity before God. There is no way to approach God when man is unworthy. Therefore, man cannot come close to him until he is cleansed and declared clean by someone who has the authority to do so. All of these, all of the law is like this. All of it points to something that God has to do. Otherwise, there is no way that man can ever be in a right relationship with God. In most circumstances mentioned, God provided a way um, for those who had the diseases or whatever that they could get over, that they could once again be considered clean. It always involved blood, fire, pure water, and ashes. Something had to die ceremonially in order for them to be declared clean. Now here's where it affects what we're looking at today. There were actually those who were constantly, every day of their life, in a condition of uncleanliness. Luke brings them up over and over again. If you think about his gospel, the woman who had the constant bleed for 18 years, um, just different people who were constantly in this state, lepers all the, their whole lives. By God's law, they were actually banned from the tabernacle and from the community. God was very, very direct. In Numbers 5, 1 through 3, he said, Get them out of the community. I will not have their uncleanliness before my tabernacle. So lepers, according to the law, had to warn people of their presence. Anytime they would come close to people, just try to get yourself in the mindset of someone who had a disease like this. Anytime they saw someone, they had to have torn clothes in the sign of death and mourning, and they would cover their faces, and they would have to yell out loud, unclean, unclean. Imagine you had to walk around because you had some kind of disease, Ebola, AIDS. Imagine people who had that, and they had to yell out everywhere they went, don't come close, I have this, unclean, unclean. How much would that push them out of society? So there was actually a whole community of cursed and forsaken people. Um, their conditions of that day, too, are nothing like ours. Those who have diseases and things that would keep them outcast, the government takes care of them, those... These people had no one to fall back on. They had nothing to take care of them. They were the outcasts, the poor. Desperate, lonely, and many times treated worse than animals. So that's a little bit of the background so we can get a little bit more about this guy and exactly what's going on between him and Jesus. Now let's look at the small passage and look at the two main characters so we can see some beautiful things about Jesus. Look at verse 12, the desperate outcast. And it came to pass when he, Jesus, was in a certain city. Now Jesus is out in the open, in some city, probably in Galilee. And the significance of saying that it's a city is that they were walled. 
And if it's a walled city, according to the law, a leper was not allowed to enter. And if they were caught inside the city walls, they were punished with either um, whipping or being stoned. So just think about that as this leper goes into the city, he knows what waits for him inside that city. And yet he goes in anyway. Behold a man full of leprosy. And this is written by a doctor. Luke, the writer of this gospel, is a historian and a doctor of that time. And so when he says this man was full of leprosy, try to imagine how much this poor guy is suffering with the disease of leprosy. What did he look like? Was he covered in rags? Could he walk? Did he have to drag his feet? Did he, did he have everything bound in close because he was so afraid of something falling off? He would have been a disgusting sight in the eyes of the people of that time. Full of leprosy. But what does he do? Seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him. Now get the picture in your mind. I, I like when these stories come up to actually try to imagine. And sometimes put yourself in the shoes of the people in there. As soon as this guy comes up, what would everybody else have done? They would have pulled back. They would have started yelling, screaming. Some of them might have even started picking up rocks to throw at this guy. What are you doing? What do you think you're... You know, just that whole draw back and get ready. What does Jesus do? Nothing. He stands there. And he lets this filthy man come close and fall down right up to him, but not touching him. Right up to the master, but not touching him. Teachers, rabbis, Pharisees had a tradition, a law. Three meters, a leper could come. Not closer than three meters. And if the wind was behind them, they had to be 50 meters away from the teachers, the rabbis. Those who were really clean in their own eyes. And if they did, they got a serious and a cruel reaction from those teachers and those religious leaders of that time. Jesus stood there. Notice the attitude of the leper. I love this. He prostrates himself on the ground. And that probably really hurts. Prostrates himself and begs Jesus, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Can you hear the humility in that begging? If you want. If it's according to your will. If you so desire. How is our heart's attitude towards our Lord and Master? Does it have that much humility when we ask things of Him? If you will. Jesus to Him is Lord. And I don't actually think He fully gets who Jesus is here. I, I don't know. But I don't think He gets that Jesus is God in the flesh. But He knows that this man has a power and an authority that no other man can offer. And that's why he's risked everything to beg him for mercy. I love how it is in Bosnian. It's say, which means have mercy upon me. It's kind of like the, the tax collector in the temple who beat himself. Have mercy upon me. Attitude is an incredible lesson from this street vermin I have written here. Now, there's another shade to this that we don't get that the readers would have totally understood. As soon as he said this, and one reason why this is here, is why did he ask Jesus, if you will, you can make me what? Clean. What would you have thought he would have asked for? Yeah. If you are, you will make me well. You will make me whole. You can cure me. He understands something more that is very big in this culture, and that is... That leprosy in their mindset is always tied to sin and judgment. This guy thought that he suffered because God was angry with him. You can make me clean. You can make me acceptable. You understand? I think there are deeper intentions and longings in this man's life than just his physical intentions. Suffering in their mind was a punishment, and so many people think this today. And those affected so were cursed by God. And they actually had an expression for leprosy, that it was a blow from Yahweh for an exceptional transgression. That was the mindset of the day. And it's not totally wrong. If you look back at the Old Testament, 
Many times when you see leprosy, it has to do with judgment and authority. Moses, in Exodus chapter 4, when he was proving that he had the authority and power of God. Aaron and Miriam, when Miriam rose up against Moses, what did God strike Miriam with? Leprosy. Naaman and Elisha, all the lepers in Israel, none were cured except Naaman. Judgment. They would not come to the prophet for healing. Uzziah, that's an incredible story. This king who lifted himself up and went into the temple to offer a sacrifice and immediately what comes out on his forehead? Leprosy. Joab, when he was doing all of his private vengeance and David curses him, he curses his generations to come with leprosy. And then Isaiah 1 is an incredible chapter. I didn't know this until I read this, but read Isaiah 1 when you, when you get home. God is describing the nation of Israel in terms of leprosy. He's describing them as this horrific leper, and everything that He talks about to make them clean, all that's crimson, I will make white as snow, all those, those have to do with what you had to do to cleanse a leper according to the law. It's an amazing picture that has to do with leprosy. This separation, this uncleanness. So this is the situation in the crowd that's around Jesus. When they look on this guy, he's completely cursed and bound by the consequences of sin. Physically, spiritually, no escape, no redemption, no restoration. Desperation. Look at Jesus, the compassionate Lord. Verse 13. Verse 13 that was my American accent coming out just there. Verse 13. Um, verse thir- this 13 reads really fast. If you read over it, it's easy to read through this story, and it's like, wow, that's a cool, it's another miracle. But this verse contains a greater love and compassion than we will ever see in our lives. Think back about that guy in the ER and Ebola, the doctors that went to Africa to try to somehow help the people that had it. How much love does it take to give up your life, to risk your life so that someone... And sometimes they won't ever even believe. They won't even care what you believe. That's some amazing love. But this is incredible. Verse 13. And he put forth his hand and touched him. Think about it. Put forth his hand. There's intention in that. And touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. There is something going on in this verse that we can't we can't imagine. A power and authority that should give us chills to try to see in a picture. Movies can't do this. All the Jesus films and those, they are good. They have a good purpose, but they can't grasp what was going on in the context here. Everybody has fled, but Jesus remains. Light and holiness, perfect obedience, standing before a pile of sin and filth. Then Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches the untouchable. That is your Lord. No, Jesus, stop. What are you thinking? You're a prophet. You're a rabbi. You are the Holy One of Israel. If you touch Him, you will become unclean, right? According to the law, according to Yahweh's law, if He touches this man, He's supposed to be unclean. That's the story of this guy's life. Everything he touches, everything that touches him becomes unworthy becomes filthy and disgusting. Dishes, objects, people, even when he walks into a building, that building becomes unclean because of him. Nobody wanted to touch this guy because they would become unclean too. And I'm not completely judging that idea. There was That was part of the, the law. But Jesus knows that. And for the first time in his life, the opposite happens. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what happens? With his hand upon him, Jesus speaks with the authority of a king over creation. I will be clean. 
No prophet speaks like this. No prophet says, I will be clean. We'll talk about that a little bit in just a second. It's actually a command. It's that same flavor you get in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light. Let there be this and that. And it was. That's the power that is coming from this man in front of this leper. Nothing can resist the power in that voice. Awesome, creative, redemptive power. Do you have the picture in your eye? Imagine what happened to this guy as soon as Jesus touched him and said those words. It said the leprosy departed him. All of a sudden, sensation runs through his body. His eyes can see. When he speaks, his voice is clean. His, his rags tighten up as the muscles regain back to where they're supposed to be and where he was curled up and crumpled. He suddenly straightens out. First time in years. <sighs> the beauty of baby-like skin. Everybody is dumbfounded looking on. How is this possible? Who is this man? If you haven't read that question in Luke, it comes up over and over again. And it's right to wonder like that. That's why he wrote this. So what was the result of their meeting? Look at verse 14, and we'll blast through these. I'm, I don't want to keep you here till evening time. Verse 14. <laughs> I didn't say lunch. Um, verse 14, And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. That first part where he forbids him to go and tell people, um, that is not applicable to us today. Lots of people look at the Gospels and they don't understand that the Gospels are telling a narrative. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell us exactly how we are supposed to go about our lives. Once Jesus cleanses you and sets you free, go, tell it. That's our, that's our prescription now. But for this man, in this context, there were things going on, political powers, religious powers, that Jesus had to walk a very careful trail as a man. And one of those was challenging the authorities to be, that are. Excuse me. He just did a big no-no on par with forgiving sins and transgressing the Sabbath, which he will do very shortly in the, in the chapter to come. He, only the priests, were permitted to declare someone clean, and only after a several week long process. He just stepped over a line that was not his, according to Jewish tradition, to step over. He declared someone clean without going through the whole process. He said, I have an authority higher than the law. But, so that you don't think that I'm against the law, look what he says. What does he order the man to do? Go, show yourself to the priests, go through that process like Moses commanded. Why? Two reasons. And if you're interested in looking at that process, it's Leviticus chapter 14. It is a very interesting process. Wake up. That's the first reason. Wake up, priesthood. The fulfillment of the law is here. What you cannot do, the law could declare a man clean. It could not make him clean. You understand? It just recognized something that had happened. That's the same way with everything else with regards to the law. It could only point out darkness and sin. It could never resolve it and cleanse men. That was the purpose of the law. Wake up. The fulfillment is here. Any priest worth his salt should have been asking the guy, how in the world did this happen? Where is this man that made you clean? And the second reason was to demonstrate that Jesus was not against the law. He came to fulfill it in utmost obedience. From the time, he, well, his whole life, but from the time he was baptized till the time he was on that cross, he obeyed as a man completely. His was a baptism of obedience, not repentance, when he was baptized by John. He submitted himself again and again. Why? Because we don't. 
We don't. We can't. Unfortunately, our leprous friend, I should have given him a name, our leprous friend doesn't seem to listen. And the witnesses around him, the incredible news, I mean, if it were to happen today, the same thing would happen. As soon as people find out there's a free meal somewhere, they all come out of the woodwork. And it's not just the poor people. Everybody likes a free meal. I like a free meal. If anybody wants to buy me a meal, I'm cool with that. Um, nah, Frank's going to feed me this afternoon. So he said. Um, but this is what happens. The news gets out and a massive flock of people come to Jesus. And this, I mean, you get this over and over in the things. And this is the amazing thing about our Lord. This is part of the reason He came. Part of the declaration of the kingdom of God is the restoration of all physical things. But it was a glimpse. There was a deeper issue that he had to resolve before he could bring the fullness of the kingdom. But in order to show them, that's why he healed. That's why he brought peace. That's why he did all the things he did. So that they could see that he is that fulfillment. So, so much so, this swamp of people, that Jesus must find times to restore his soul and be with the Father. Um, he's fully man and full of divine, eternal authority. And it should just constantly prompt that question, who is this man? And that, that's another idea that Luke brings up again and again, that just how Jesus had to withdraw himself to be with the Father. Um, and that's another sermon. So just in application, Luke wrote this gospel this book, for the sake of faith. So many people talk about faith, and they think that faith is dependent upon them, as in, if I just believe harder, it'll happen. That's not true. If you believe in the wrong thing, it will not happen. So he wrote this book so that you can believe in the right thing. So that you can understand what faith is like that is like a mountain that stands not like clouds that come and go as the weather of life changes. So the main point in this little story, in the bigger flow of this section of the gospel, is the awesome power and authority of Jesus. And specifically, he possesses all authority to remake a man pure, physically and spiritually. This is why he came. And this is his passion. You want to know what you should be doing in life? What was Jesus passionate about? That will give you a good hint. This tiny story is an incredible glimpse into every man's condition before God. None is worthy, for we have all fallen short of His glory. This idea of unworthiness is hard for us in the West to understand, to, un to, to be outcasts. But every man, because he was made in the image of God, Every time we choose to do things in our lives our own way, it's not like we're flipping our nose at our, at our employer or some human authority. You're flipping your nose at the God who made you in His image. And that should give you chills. The God who made all of the galaxies that we can't even see yet knows every star by name and controls every atom and molecule in your body right now. How many of you know all the molecules and atoms in your body. That's not even, a, not even worth trying to calculate. That's ha this God that we are unworthy to stand before. Every man is dead in his soul and separated from the communion with God because of his sin. This, this dead in your soul, it's hard for, for us to completely grasp. I heard a story from another missionary that helped me see this and understand it better. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, he said, you will die in the day that you eat of that fruit. But they continue to live. And I, as a kid, always wonder, why didn't they die? I thought he said they were going to die. Well, it's kind of like a beautiful rose bush. And if you look at a rose bush, it has lots of branches. And each branch has the potential of blossoming again and again and again. But we as people, we like, once we see a beautiful rose, to take that branch and cut it off and take it inside and put it in a pitcher of water. What happens to that flower after a certain amount of time? It dies. Well, it dies in our mindset. When did that flower truly die? When it was cut off from the life source. That's what happened to man back in the garden. We were cut off from the life source. And that's what is passed on. And that's why it's so hard for us to understand our deadness because we are born into it.
And we don't realize the life that Jesus offers. But just think about all the things with regards to leprosy. We are plagued by a disease of the soul that ends in eternal death or separation from the one who is life. That disease destroys us and everything we touch. History is the proof of that. Any civilization, it is of a darker filth and stench than we can ever fathom in the eyes of God. Nothing in this world, nothing we can do can ever cleanse us from this cancer in and of ourselves. Jesus is the only means of complete holiness and purity to make us whole again. When He went to that cross and bore our punishment, this is another aspect of the, of the gospel, He bore our shame, our filth. And when He bore ours, He put His holiness and His cleanliness on us. You need to understand something. In God's eyes, you are not clean because what you do and don't do. Never are you clean because of what you do and don't do. You are a son of God now. The law was a tutor. Now you are sons. And nothing you can do can separate you from that love. You can never become unclean in God's eyes. I am not giving a license for sin. But you've got to understand that. It's a relational aspect now and not a law-like aspect. So many of us in our Christian walk wrestle with this idea, I've got to do the right thing. I've got to be good or somehow achieve something in order for God. No. God loves you on your worst day. Worse than this leper. That's how we've got to understand ourselves in the eyes of God. He loves you as a father. It's just an incredible picture. John 1, 9 says, and this is a simple verse, but a powerful promise, if we confess our sins, if we are willing to humble ourselves, prostrate ourselves, and say, I need help. And I'm talking to unbelievers and believers alike. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What that man experienced that day, that... (gasps) You have to be willing to say, I need help. And if there's someone sitting here today, this is not supposed to be a show or a story that's really cool. This is real. If you are hiding something in your heart, in your life, that you think no one else sees, don't be a fool. Hear me at least and know that God sees everything and He loves you and He wants to free you from that slavery from that filth in your life. But you've got to humble yourself. Yes, it will cost. But you've got to tell someone, I need help. And I promise you, if you take those steps, you'll experience life like you never have before. It's amazing how much your conscience can make everything have a bitter taste. The most joyful things in life can be burdensome if you don't have that freedom. What in the world does this have to do with Bosnia? Anybody thinking that? Don actually laughed. What does this have to do with Bosnia and with us here today? This is a snapshot for us to think about. A story to stimulate your souls. I hope you take time to think about this. The Jesus of this story is the same Jesus today. The outcast of this story is every man and woman of our day. Go sit in a mall, buy a coffee, and watch people. Every man and woman is desperate for something. And sometimes they have no idea of the disease that is plaguing them. We are the outcasts who have experienced that cleansing and must declare that freedom to others, whatever the cost. And it's no longer what we do on the outside that makes us clean or unclean before God. Indeed, it never has been. For from the heart flow all manner of wickedness and filth. And the only cure and medicine for us today is to abide in Jesus, to walk with Him. How is your attitude towards this Lord described in this story? Do you long to please Him? Could you genuinely say, that's why I do the job I do, that's why I mother or father the children I have, because you want to please Christ? That's 
that's a hard question to answer if we're all honest. Here is a simple way to know. How do you treat people? Who are the lepers in your life that Jesus longs to deliver? May God bless the preaching of His Word. I'll pray and then I'll pass it on to one of you guys. Father, this morning is, is, a, is a gift for all of us um, as we come to Your Word and we see a snapshot of who Jesus is. And I know for me personally, and I hope for many here, it just it, it fuels that longing to see Jesus, to, to be in His presence, to freely fall prostrate. Because in our mindset today, it, it seems silly, but it is so true. It's the longing of our hearts to be able to be with Him again. And we trust You, God, that Your plans and Your mission is still going on. And we pray, Lord, I pray specifically for this body that You would continue to grow it, to shed the things that are not pleasing to You, and to grow it in love and life towards one another so that the world around will revel at the power that is at work in this community. And that only happens, God, when You move. And so I ask that You would please do that, um, that You would preserve them and cleanse them if there are things hidden that need to be cleansed. We need You, God. As much as this leper on his face needs you, we need you day in and day out, and we're so grateful that you're never the kind of God who turns away, but always reaches out and wants to touch us and be with us. And so thank you for that. Thank you for our Lord. And thank you for this day. And I pray it in his name.